0: Good day, folks. As promised, here is a brief summary of the conclusions that we will reach by the end of today's show. Today, we'll be talking about the contention really at the center of everything we've been discussing in relation to reason. That a European style of reasoning, which contains this element of chauvinism, meaning that the aspect in this European way of reasoning that says that it is the only valid way of reasoning, and that anyone who doesn't reason this way is by definition less rational and, you know, as such, uh, to use Mill's terminology, less mature, and therefore less capable of being genuinely, successfully, self-directed, self-governing, and free. This rational chauvinism, as we've been calling it, this kind of got balled up into a European worldview with a number of other forms of chauvinism. Other areas where people who thought and lived in a certain way figured that anyone who thought or lived differently, well, those people were, were just wrong, those people that thought and lived differently, and they needed to adopt our better ways of doing things. All these additional chauvinisms, uh, of course, these include religion, these include ideas about commerce and ownership, these, these include ideas about You know, what makes for a proper family, what makes for a proper community, what makes for a proper place to live, includes modes of legality, use of languages, on and on and on. You can really list almost every prominent aspect of, of culture. Take all, again, take all those forms of chauvinism, take all of that, ball it up all together, including with this kind of rational chauvinism and all these other pieces that we've been talking about. Ball that up into what we've been calling our European rationally chauvinist worldview. So take all of these various chauvinisms, bail them up together in this one particular worldview that has all of them working together, and then feed that into the Gatling gun that is the historical process of imperialism. And as a consequence of that brutal, centuries-long, and shockingly extensive process, what happens as a consequence of this is that that worldview, with all those pieces of chauvinism in it, as a consequence of that, this worldview got spread over the globe, largely, of course, at sword and gunpoint. And because that worldview was, again, predicated on the idea that most or all of its elements were the superior, the, the best possible ways to, to think, to speak, to act, to worship, to conduct commerce, and on and on and on. As a consequence of all of that, this process caused a massive change in how most of the world thinks. This worldview spread across the globe like a noxious weed, changing or eliminating every other way of thinking, worshiping, exchanging, and reasoning that we previously might have found amongst the peoples of the world. Now, I want to pause here to be very clear on a certain point and say that this effort was not entirely, quote, unquote, successful. And by successful, I mean successful in the eyes, in the goals of what the imperialists would call successful, meaning this process of changing the entire world's way of thinking. That didn't happen entirely. By which I mean, with all this, there remain people across the globe who still foster what we might call and this is almost silly to say, but what we might call a sort of quote-unquote alternative means of rationality and alternative worldviews that go along with them. But the fact remains that the spread of this European mode of reasoning was massively extensive to the point that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it has become the sort of default means by which the mind operates most everywhere on the globe. So as we move in that direction, I hope you enjoy the journey and getting there. As a reminder, if you're going to hang on immediately after the episode, I've added in some questions that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I hope you listen to those. I hope you send me your ideas, but without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. I'm hoping you had the chance to check out our little mid-season recap that I did just a couple days ago. I wanna be sure we're all on the same page going forward and with the six hours of content that we've had thus far in this season, I figured it might be helpful to do a nice little Notes version of where we're at, where we've been thus far. Of course, you're welcome to proceed either way, but again, I thought you might find it a little bit helpful. As I mentioned last time, we're set to take a bit of a detour for the next few episodes. Now, this was not my original plan for the season, but piece after piece after piece of all of this, what we've been talking about, what I've been reading, what we've been thinking about here— All of it pointed to some issues that I felt we really had to reconcile ourselves with, some glaring issues that we just couldn't ignore and move forward. Though we will continue this line of reasoning that we started with Locke and with Mill, we're actually gonna be coming back to Mill, talking about him at much greater length and even more than that one paragraph that we've discussed so far. In the meantime, in this sort of mini-series that we're doing in the middle of all this, we're gonna be bringing in some contemporary voices to help us make sense of of everything we've talked about so far and set us up on a stage to, to think about these things moving forward. Specifically, we're going to spend the next few episodes doing a deep dive on the notion of reason. Now, we'll start today by looking at this idea of a specifically European conception of rationality. Now, we've talked a lot about the, this role of reason in European thinking, and specifically in philosophical thinking generally, and about how that concept, how that faculty relates back to political and social freedom, the, the realities of freedom as people experience it on a day-to-day basis. As a very brief reminder in sum, the, the sort of pinnacle piece, the, the keystone of how reason relates to, to freedom, most European philosophical notions of freedom operate is a kind of three-part motion. Our capacity for reason results in our ability to make free choices, right? We're able to consider the consequences, able to consider the circumstances, and thus we are able to make choices. We are therefore free to act and to actually implement those choices, after which we are going to be held accountable and responsible for whatever the results of those choices were. So it's that three-part motion from reason to choice to responsibility. Take away any one of those three, not rational, not free to implement our choices, or not responsible for our choices, and you cease to be truly free in the way that the traditional European definition allows for. So how did classical philosophers define this capacity for reason? The folks we've talked about so far, and many, many more besides, of course, we've only talked about two guys so far, but there are a lot more who would think in in roughly this same way. These folks would describe reason at its highest level, at its best. They would describe reason as a rigorous, logical, objective, and, and, and by objective here, objective means not connected to Uh, With the sort of immediate concerns of my personhood or the immediate perspective that I have as an individual or as a single self. Rather, this is kind of elevated. This objectivity elevates this capacity for reason to a plane of universality where I can try to speak from the perspective of all humankind or even perhaps aspire to a truth that is divorced from all human, that's sort of up above the specific concerns and ideas of humankind, or of any perspective whatsoever. Now, part and parcel of this goal of objectivity is the fact that reason, in these folks' view, reason came to seem like a faculty that, in a sense, it was externalized from themselves. It was somehow separate from the individuals who used it. It's it's like a hammer. It's both integral to this particular human activity, but it's also clearly separate from the person using it. So it that real sense of separation, the the notion that this faculty was kind of a tool that was divorced from the rest of us, which again, that keeps it away from our emotions, that keeps it away from our individual, personal perspectives that might taint the kind of universality of it all, right? Now, of course, it is a human faculty, right? It is uniquely human, all too human, as, as Nietzsche would say. But perfecting the use of this faculty particularly cultivating this idea of pure objectivity and reason, that meant ensuring that this faculty was not mired in, again, the particulars of us. It wasn't overawed by the contingent, immediate, particular aspects of, of my personality or my personal perspective or my individual needs or my individual wants or individual emotions. Under the best circumstances, Reason became like a tool that we used, and which, which separated this entire process from those sort of mucky individual pieces about ourselves. Reason was all at once this consummately human quality, but one which remained separated from, and aloof from, the difficult mire of who and what we are on a day-to-day basis. And it allowed us to separate from some of the messier aspects of our subjective selves, and again achieve this kind of objective status over and above the transient facts of our individual nature. This was part and parcel of the belief that reason in its purest form allowed us to tap into an objective view of any given problem, any given issue, and really achieve something more like a universal truth. Now very important here, very important to this definition of what reason is, is the presumption that there is only one way to do it. There's only one true perspective, one true path up the mountain, if you will, out of the dark valley of irrationality and particularity and up to the high peak of pure reason, pure truth. There's just one path, one overall methodology that brings us as close as we can be to that sort of perfect universal perspective. There aren't many roads up the mountain. There are not different ways, different perspectives to use, different kinds of reasoning, different ways to use our minds to help us view and solve a problem. Every perspective, method, and line of reasoning is either closer to perfect or it's further from it. Now again, every human will reason imperfectly, none of these folks would claim otherwise. Only God, of course, only God could reason perfectly. So no mortal will ever be absolutely right, but they will be either closer to or further from that one absolute truth. Now, think of it in something like the way that we probably think of physics now, though. I suppose it's worthwhile noting that quantum has put radical subjectivity right back into the heart of physics. But to be safe, we can put ourselves in the mindset of a Newtonian physicist. Now, they would think of physics and the rules of inquiry that science and physics entails, they would think of this as a process they could grasp, but one that was very much reflective of an external set of rules and truths. Physics is not about our perspective. It's not about what we want to happen. It's not about our our emotions, right? It isn't swayed by the subjective whims of our preferences. It depends on external truths that we either understand or fail to understand. Well, now if you guys ask Mill or Kant or Hegel or Descartes or any of most of these other folks in this particular span of European intellectual history they will tell you that pure reasoning in the form of philosophy is doing almost exactly the same kind of work. It is acting as a lens through which we can grasp objective external truth about the nature of the world, about the nature of ourselves, and really about the nature of everything else in between. Now let's further recall that this one feature of the European mind This one understanding or description of its faculties was also not somehow isolated from all the other features of the human mind, right? So just because we envisioned this faculty of reason as being kind of off on its own and separated like a tool, that wasn't really the case, right? This was just another faculty of mind that was enmeshed with all the others of the features of mind of the people who used it. And while not all people in this era were engaged in this kind of reasoning and did not all aspire to the use of this sort of near-perfect objectivity and logic and thought, though this exact activity of reason as it was imagined was something that only a very few people engaged in, it nonetheless played a major role in shaping the way European people as a whole viewed themselves and viewed the style and the capacity of their thinking. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that this way of reasoning sort of became part of a general European worldview. And by worldview, we mean the entire collection of thoughts and assumptions and presumptions and experiences and instincts and ideas that make up our overall attitude in and toward the world. So the European worldview in these centuries included the notion of reason even for people who did not seek to engage in it in the same way someone like a Mill or a Locke or a Hegel or a Descartes would have. The presumption that there was this rarefied style of thinking that brought people closer to the truth and brought this certain group of people closer to the truth than any other people could be even though that actual practice was not universal amongst Europeans, the chauvinism that came with it, the chauvinism that came along with this viewpoint, that of course, unsurprisingly, was far more widespread. We can almost think of this the way we would think of aspects of our national pride. I might say that as an American, I belong to the first people who who went to the moon, who walked on the moon, even though I personally take anxiety pills just to get on a Delta connection flight, right? As such, when we look at this overall European worldview, which includes this particular notion of European rationality and all of the chauvinism that goes along with it, that notion of rationality sort of begins to informally line itself up with all the other norms that are included in that worldview. So, for example, certain kinds of public and perhaps even private behavior, certain ways of conducting economic exchange, certain ways of worshiping, certain ways of celebrating, certain ways of telling stories, certain ways of valuing actions and ideas, and all of these other sort of pieces and norms and aspects of a worldview that are a kind of tightly wound myriad of views and presumptions and learn behaviors and expectations that constitute that really, you know, when you put them all together, that constitute this overall European worldview. And into every other aspect of that worldview is, you know, continually woven in this notion of not only this concept of reasoning, again, whether I practice that or not, because I'm a member of the people that do that at least some of them do It becomes part of my kind of general amorphous uh, identity, right, As as a European person. Well, because that's all sort of enmeshed together, then also this whole concept of this whole, I should say, this sense of rational chauvinism, that begins to imbue my entire worldview as well. That begins to sort of enmesh itself in my identity of who I am. The rational chauvinism, even if, again, I personally do not practice the actual reasoning itself. And we're going to talk a lot more about this idea of a worldview and how much of our minds are actually built of a very particular understanding of the world and our place in it that we nonetheless often have a very hard time examining and understanding precisely because it is all at once extremely complex and yet operates largely on a level of tacit assumption. A question when we're thinking about this is how different are the minds of two people raised in two wholly different cultures, with wholly different traditions and ways of expressing their values? How different are their basic assumptions about the world and their respective places in it, even as creatures that both sense and presumably expend some effort to seek to understand the world, but as I said, all of this is kind of for a later discussion. The primary point is that when we think about our worldview, it's really a far too massive collection of ideas and thoughts and presumptions and assumptions for us possibly to fully understand it. So before we continue, let me quickly summarize where this leaves us more or less. Start again with our vaunted notion of capital R pure reasoning, the stuff that our Descartes and our Locks and our Kants and our Mills and our Hegels are doing. This is our most purely rational, logical, objective faculty of mind. It is not personal, it is not mired in immediacy and contingency, it is the work of identifying the one possible path, the one possible truth in any given situation. It is the closest we get to being able to think the way that God thinks. Absolute, objective reasoning. And it is also the beginning of what we have been calling a kind of rational chauvinism. A rational chauvinism that would be bad enough, probably, if it stayed in the drawing rooms and the studies and the libraries, where the philosophers and the scientists and all others of their ilk sort of hung out. But of course, like all good chauvinisms, it didn't stay there it became part of this overall worldview that was shared by most Europeans regardless of how rational or irrational they actually were in the way they comported themselves in their day-to-day lives. But how was it that this rational chauvinism, again, not necessarily the reasoning itself, but the rational chauvinism, how did that become such a significant, I would almost say dominating part of the overall European worldview and the overall sense of European identity. I would say that there are fundamentally three ways that this rational chauvinism is seeping into, again, the overall European identity and the European worldview that goes along with it. First, as Europeans, they were seeing these ideas of reason sort of reified and reiterated through their institutions in civil society in education, in the economy, in law, in justice, and on and on and on. And in all the way, in all the same ways that we keep talking about. Now, again, maybe this wasn't pure reason, but it was an echo of that faculty. And it used a lot of the same terminology, right? Everything sort of referenced back this notion that this was all very rational. This was all part of this very ordered and logical way that folks structured their civil society and structured their lives see these laws, see these institutions, see this civil society, we've built an entire structure of society on the blueprint of our particular brand of rationality. Not, again, and importantly, not again that that everyone was involved in the actual practice of the reason itself, it's just to say that all these aspects of life in civil society were at least ostensibly rooted in that notion of rationality. Second, As we talked about in our series with Locke, and to some extent in our series on Mill, they saw it in their history as well. Now here again, I've talked about this a few times, but just to reiterate, think about someone in Mill's era thinking only of the England that surrounds them. We've got to keep that nice narrow blinders on kind of point of view. If you narrow your view and you're only looking at England historically from 850 to 1850, well, it's pretty defensible to view that, that history and to look at that society and say that basically it has been on an upward trajectory all that time. It's reasonable to say that, okay, this is a society that it's getting more rational, getting more fair. It's getting more egalitarian. It's getting healthier. It's getting richer. It's getting more peaceful by whatever measure you want to use. It's getting more politically stable. I be, whatever measure you want to use, I believe you could convince yourself Especially if you're willing to, you know, again, put those blinders on, not thinking, only think about what's happening in England, not maybe thinking about what's happening in the world because of England. We'll we'll set that to the side for now. Just think about what's happening within the bounds of England itself. If you're willing to put those blinders on, you would see that the trend line of history is pointing upward and perhaps has been doing so for a, a millennium and a half at this point. All while the overall capacity for reason itself is becoming stronger and more precise, which we can, you know, you can see when you look at the way scientists talk. You can see when you look at the way the philosophers are talking. Everybody's sort of pointing toward this notion that reason is becoming a stronger and stronger and stronger guiding force in the way society is structuring itself. Now take those two impulses, you take those two impulses combined along with the general notion of our identities as members of a state or members of a culture, or as as we've talked about, in some cases, members of a race, take all of that, put all of that together, plus the way we interact with these institutions in our society, plus the way we talk about ourselves as generally being engaged in rational society and in rational commerce, all of that together becomes a prominent aspect of the overall European worldview the overall sense of European identity. Again, as vague and as nebulous as that may be. And again, uh, worth pointing out, the actual faculty of reasoning itself that we keep talking about, the work of these philosophers, that probably is put by the wayside for most people. That practice is not part of the chauvinism for them. They're just holding on to the chauvinism that they see reflected in their place in the world, reflected in their history, reflected in their institutions. Now, you could easily push back against this idea by suggesting that perhaps I spend a little bit too much time with my philosophy books if I think that everyone in Europe in this period is somehow in a cult of Western philosophy and and sort of being driven by this, this, this fanaticism of the cult of philosophy and pure reason. That their entire worldview, their entire identities are somehow defined and compelled by their relationship to rationality. That's of course not how most people historically talk about themselves, you might say. And yes, admittedly, at very few times in our history, if any, have philosophers reigned as the most influential people in any given society. But let's review my exact contention in this case. I'm not saying that we have a sort of cult of you know, John Locke or John Stuart Mill developing in England here, and that somehow his subliminal messages of the, of the second treatise of government uh, have created the European will to spread their way of thinking across the globe through imperialism. Rather, what I'm suggesting is that pure reason in philosophy, that, that pure notion of reason in philosophy, perhaps even better stated, a belief in the possibility of a notion of pure reason, and the belief in the power of pure reasoning, if you could tap into it. That belief, that sense that that was a possibility, the fact that, as we said, the chauvinism associated with this type of reasoning is far more widespread than the actual use of the faculty itself. Again, it's better to think of this like national pride, like our taking a bit of credit and our identifying ourselves with some of the great feats of our national history. You know, again, just to use another example, I personally had no influence on the outcome of World War II, right? That I had nothing to do with that. I can take no credit for that. But the memory of the people that did help to do so, and the notion that perhaps their legacy is in some way alive in the national character of America, and and therefore alive in me as someone who identifies himself as an american now that's extremely nebulous but it's also extremely real and i think any one of us who's part of a kind of national group or any other kind of identity group i think we can identify with with that pull of of chauvinism based around certain things that maybe we had nothing to do with but nonetheless we call them pieces of our overall group character, whether it's our national character or whatever other group we claim to be a member of. When we think as a group, when we think of ourselves as members of a group, we tend, of course, to associate ourselves with the very best features of that group and somehow portray ourselves as though those great features are alive in us, whether they really are or not. Thus. I don't think that the idea that these types of feats of reason and science and thought, the fact that those are possible in my culture, even if I have nothing to do with them, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine the same idea applying in this setting that a generalized pride or chauvinism could become very widespread based on that being part of a kind of national identity. Also, if we're being honest with ourselves, And I think this is as true now as it was true then. The way we talk about the idea of reason, or of being rational, or of our own rationality, the way we talk about all that, it's it's really pretty sloppy, right? Just think about the way that we today so often use this this word reason, this idea of rational argument, the silliness, if you'll excuse me, that passes for syllogism our arguments from the petty anti-a priori, our QEDs that are dimmer than an LED. And thank you very much for indulging me in those. And I'm sorry, that last one, I felt of the three, the last one wasn't really quite up to standard. Uh, But, you know, it's always good to do things in threes. I'm fundamentally a Hegelian at heart. So, you know, had to get a third one in there, even though it wasn't very good. Anyway, to be perhaps a bit more clear about all this, Let's think of the way we use the word reason as being akin to the way we use the word love, which I think you'll agree is typically pretty loosey-goosey, right? I mean, honestly, how many things have you professed your love for just today? Whatever was in that to-go cup from the, the coffee drive through that you've now already thrown away? That show you watched while you were uh, checking Twitter? Perhaps I hope you also use it in terms of a few people in your life who have actually earned a a less fleeting expression of that emotion. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we do use the word love pretty broadly, right? Probably far more expansively than we really should. Well, think about the way we use reason in reference to our own thoughts and actions and speech. Maybe we'll see. We kind of use it in the same way. And But just because we're using the word very loosely, very expansively, doesn't mean that we're not still kind of building up that chauvinism that goes, ar- goes along with it. So, as a consequence, again, this rational chauvinism gets woven into that overall ball of yarn, right? That, that messy ball of yarn of our overall worldview and self-identity. It becomes yet another aspect, yet another attitude about who we are and our relationship with and to the world, whether or not, again, we personally are ever bothered to do something like actual capital R rigorous reasoning. So we're talking about this overall European worldview, this overall kind of European identity. That contains, as a prominent feature, this notion of what we're calling rational chauvinism. Again, the the idea that we as a people are on to some very particular kind of truth that maybe the rest of the world isn't privy to, whether or not we participate in the actual rationality that gets us there. But you know, never mind that. So we keep talking about this one aspect of this worldview, this rational chauvinism. What are, what are maybe some of the other features of this worldview? What are some of the leading characteristics of this overall European worldview, particularly as it defines itself when it is facing outward, meaning when it is presenting itself to foreign lands and to foreign peoples as it does in imperialism. Now, when I rattle off some of these qualities that sort of pop into my head when I think about this, I'm talking about the overall collective European mindset, the collective European worldview or identity. So as we think about the worldview of these Europeans who are running around implementing imperialism, it is dominated by, among other things, a religious attitude, presumably, right? A religious attitude that, dare I say, at the time, was not inclined to accept a lot of differences of opinion, right? Imperialists, if, the, if we think of them as a group, this is a mass of people with a worldview, and wherein we would not think of them being too open-minded about other religions, particularly religions that they encounter being practiced by the quote-unquote native, quote-unquote primitive people that they encounter through imperialism. And in many cases, this is going to act in just the way that this notion of rational chauvinism does. They may or may not practice that religion that they identify with to any great extent, but they still identify with it. They still adopt it as yet another aspect of their chauvinism. We might also speculate that this worldview trends toward being increasingly capitalistic over the centuries in which imperialism is being implemented. Now, particularly in imperialism for folks who are practicing imperialism, which of course, you know, if we wanted, we could describe imperialism as a kind of singular expression of rabid, no holds barred entrepreneurship. It's creating one's own opportunity by absolutely any means necessary. And of course, capitalist impulses, even if that's not what these folks would have called, I mean, these aren't folks who are talking about capitalism and the free market at this point, but still that's kind of a a sort of rabid, violent version of, of what we're talking about here. Being a capitalist is another aspect of a worldview that is going to compel you to be chauvinistic, to want you to spread, to sort of compel you to spread your worldview, to compel you to spread the practices that you use. Because if I can use a silly analogy here, you know, if i being the only capitalist is like being the only person with a telephone. You want other people to be part of the game to make it worth your while. You want as many other people as possible to be part of the game, to make it worth your while. Now, in each of these features of this European worldview that I'm talking about, that I'm very glibly going through here, we see, well, you know, of course we see what we would call chauvinism, as we've been talking about this entire time. Chauvinism, meaning a a sort of confidence, uh, you might even say a, a kind of put your blinders on sort of confidence that This way of viewing the world is better than any alternative, whatever alternatives you might encounter. Which means that in the many features of this worldview, we see an impulse for that worldview to reproduce itself. Meaning, people who have this worldview, who are part of this worldview that has these, these and other sort of chauvinistic aspects to it, these folks are compelled by most of its features to try to get other people to think and act in similar ways, to adopt this same worldview. What this means, in essence, is that in this worldview, with the chauvinism that relates back to reason, or to religion, or to capitalism, or as we've discussed elsewhere, to features like racism, in each aspect of this worldview we have impulses and ideas that are, in a sense, driven to reproduce themselves, designed to both survive and to propagate themselves precisely because they all compel the person who carries these ideas and attitudes to spread them. Now, you may remember last season, we spoke about memes, which we can define loosely, and by by the way, I should pause. I'm not talking about Twitter memes, right? Uh, It's the same word, same spelling, but It has a a different meaning for folks who are not aware. So within the the philosophical, uh, psychological, neuroscientific context, uh, we would define memes as sort of loosely like idea genes. Memes are all the pieces of thought and idea and memories that make up who we are, what we think, and really all the rest of it, really our entire mental life. They're like units of thought. Of course, now that's all figurative. These aren't actually things you can measure. These aren't physical things like a gene, but you you get the idea. Richard Dawkins put the idea forward originally to suggest that some kinds of ideas, just like some kinds of genes, that was the similarity, was that sort of survival of the fittest idea that you see in both genes and in memes, which of course I'm oversimplifying the way that works in genes, but you know, just uh, let's set that aside for the moment. Richard Dawkins put forward the idea to suggest that some kinds of ideas are, are just better at propagating themselves, better at sticking around, better at becoming more prominent, spreading themselves from mind to mind to mind, while others just kind of tend to die off. You know, to take for an example, and no offense to, to, to anyone here, uh, but the music of Brahms, for example, that's one set of memes, right? Uh, on the other hand, the music of Debbie Gibson, that's uh that's another set of memes, right? Their fitness for survival and propagation is obviously somewhat different, at least so far in history. I mean, maybe we'll find 50 years from now that no one knows who Brahms is, but Debbie Gibson, maybe there are statues everywhere. I, I don't know. And no offense to Debbie Gibson, I, I should really admit, and maybe actually I, I should never ever admit this, but I, I'll just say, and you know, I mean, hey, we're, we're all family here. We're all friends. When I was young, I absolutely adored Debbie Gibson. She had a, uh, an album cover. She had a teddy bear on it. And the teddy bear was wearing a watch. And I thought this was the height of ironic cleverness. I, I don't know. You know I, probably not a great thing to be admitting if, I, you know, if I'm trying to bring you all around to the view that, that my ideas are, you know, competitive, good competitive memes that you want to propagate, that's probably not good information for you to have, but hey, like I say, better we all be honest with each other, right? In any event, if you think about memes, the, the memes that constitute this entire European rational chauvinist worldview, well, really that, that entire worldview, all worldviews, are really just these kind of supersets, super collections of memes, Which, for a variety of reasons, uh, in the case of this European rational chauvinist worldview, this has proven very capable of survival and propagation across the globe, right? Which is not necessarily to say that we would call all of these ideas better ideas. Just to say that they've proven better at spreading, better at propagating themselves. So. What happens when we take these leading elements of a worldview, like rational chauvinism, like religion, like capitalism, like individualism that's another strand of, of this entire worldview that we haven't talked about as much, like the presence of theories of a superior quote-unquote white or European race, like the cultural history that regards feats in exploration as among its finest moments, and on and on and on. What if you took every one of those ideas that constitute this worldview, and I'm certainly not expressing every piece of it, but the point is, if you take them all, what you have, when you put all of these features together into a worldview is a super collection of memes that again have proven, if nothing else, to be quite effective at propagating and spreading themselves further. Many, most of these memes that constitute this overall worldview compels the people who possess those memes to want to reiterate that worldview. They want to spread that worldview, whether that's the worldview as it relates to a certain kind of reasoning, or to capitalism, or to a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of religion, or whether that's related to the, you know, the primacy of a certain race. All of those ideas have a sort of built-in feature that compels the people that possess them to want to reproduce them, to demonstrate the dominance of this way of thinking and living. So my purpose in all of this, thinking about our sometimes rational, sometimes racist, sometimes rationally chauvinist, always self-interested worldview, is simply to set us up to recognize how powerfully influential a process like imperialism has been, not just in terms of the physical and economic damage it has done, but in terms of how it has changed the way the world thinks. How humankind uses our minds, how we use our faculties of reason and inquiry, how we understand just as we talked about a few episodes back, we've got a nearly seismic process in in human history that has taken place very recently in our history, by the way, which, and I I don't know how you measure this, but it seems logical to me to assume that this single institution, imperialism, widespread and long-lasting as it was, that this did more to alter the basic way of thinking in humankind than any event before or certainly since, and it has resulted in a world which, if we use a sort of ecological analogy, that's, it's not exactly justifiable. I mean, this is not exactly the way all this works, but I, I find it compelling nonetheless. We could use an, an ecological analogy of the European worldview having spread like a species that proliferated to such an extent that it has severely threatened, and I assume sometimes has completely destroyed other worldviews and is now so widespread as to have begun to not only damage the rest of the ecosystem, but as a consequence of damaging the overall ecosystem in which it exists, it perhaps has begun to damage itself as well, as creatures that severely damage and dominate ecosystems will tend to do. So to bring this all back around to where we started from, this process of imperialism as Europeans were rampaging around the globe, doing inestimable damage to lives and societies and civilizations, at the same time, they were also spreading this European rationally chauvinist worldview. One prominent feature of which was a particular style of reasoning and rationality, reasoning and rationality, both as it operated in a kind of abstract capital R sense, and as it permeates all of civil society in the small r rationality that we use to conduct most of our public interactions. Wherever the settlers went, meaning wherever the imperialists went, they took this way of thinking, this collection of memes, this European rationally chauvinist worldview, they took that with them and as a consequence of taking control over some combination of the religious practices the education the governance the commerce and the society of a whole of all of these colonial territories that mode of reasoning and rationality and all that comes with it became the enforced standard mode of thought of inquiry of learning and of understanding in every area where these imperialists ended up affecting. So what was at one point, this fairly niche approach to thinking, one that a comparatively small number of human beings practiced this, you know, again, this European style of reasoning, rationality, understanding, and inquiry. That once comparatively very niche approach to structuring the human mind Through this process, it became what it is today, essentially a near global default setting by which the majority of human beings on this planet conduct the work of the mind. Now, I should say, I'm not, I don't mean everyone here. There are many peoples who have maintained very distinct ways of thinking, very distinct ways of reasoning, inquiring, understanding, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. But I also think that most of those folks would agree that this process, which is often referred to as the colonization of the mind, that has surely done significant damage to alternate worldviews, alternate approaches to reasoning and understanding and inquiry all across the globe. Now, again, this European rational worldview, which includes this mode and method of reasoning, this encompasses a wide array of the most basic and complex functions of mind, from the most banal economic transactions that we conduct every day—you know, the way we go to the store to buy a, a gallon of milk—all the way up to the way we we go about trying to understand the meaning of life and our way and our place in the world. This is so much the case that I would argue that many of us—and I say us explicitly here—as I live my I have lived much of my life in exactly exactly this state. Many of us could get through our lives assuming that there really was no other way of thinking, no other way of understanding the world, no other alternative for how we inquire, how we solve problems, or perhaps we assume consciously or otherwise, that this European mode of rational thought must be inherently better, better suited to the work of processing and understanding the world. Because of course, that's how you will come to think if you see no alternative, but this one approach that we see again, having populated much of the world at this point in time. So we can think about this notion of European reasoning, quote unquote, European reasoning and the worldview that accompanies it from a different angle. Now, in hopes of understanding more viscerally what we're talking about here, and how it manifests in our own lives, most every day. One of the challenges that I think we have in trying to understand what all of this means is the fact that these European modes of rationality that I keep referencing are now so prevalent, so ubiquitous in our education systems, in our assumptions, in the way we conduct ourselves in civil society, in the way we conduct commerce, and certainly in the way we, in what we read in philosophy, It's so prevalent that I think we come to mistake it for simply being natural, simply being the default by which all of our operations of the mind are supposed to work, as if it was simply an inherent function of the way our brains are structured versus something that we have learned based on this one particular worldview that has taken such a predominant role in the world. Put differently, This way of thinking, or more precisely, this characterization of thinking is so come the way we describe our faculty of reason, the way we describe the way we make decisions, the way we describe the way we conduct science and conduct inquiry and on and on and on. The way we think about the way we think, meaning the way we describe the process of thinking, of reasoning, of inquiry the rules that we believe are meant to apply to those processes. Those are now so common, so dominant in our own culture that we have a very hard time, first, imagining that there could possibly be any alternative and second, realizing that the way we think about our own thinking, and I'm sorry if that kind of ties the brain in knots a little bit, but the way we think about our own thinking, our instinctive notions of how we are supposed to use reason, what it is supposed to mean to us, how it is supposed to operate, how it is supposed to influence our overall worldview and decision-making in the world. We come to the point of not being able to realize that this is not simply a built-in fact about how our minds must work, but rather it's an historical contingency, a semi-intended consequence of centuries of imperialism that included this process of the quote-unquote colonization of the mind, in which every alternative, every alternative style of reasoning, every alternative method of inquiry, all of those were marginalized to the extent that many of us have no exposure to them whatsoever. And thus we assume that the way we do think now is the only way we can think now. That the way reason operates for us, or I should say, the way we believe reason operates for us is the only way that reason can operate at all. Now, let me take this one step further. What if this picture that we've sort of created for ourselves of the way our minds work, the way specifically our faculty of reasoning, our quote-unquote faculty of reasoning, what if that picture that we've kind of created for ourselves, based very much in the, the way folks like Locke and Mill and all these other classic European philosophers, based in the way they talk about reasoning, what if that vision of reasoning that we've kind of created for ourselves, what if that isn't even correct, meaning We may have told ourselves that we are rational in a certain way, even though we are not rational in that way, because we simply see no alternative to this basic style of rationality, because all those other alternatives have been marginalized. What if we simply assume that this picture of reasoning that we hear in folks like Mill and Locke and others is the way reason must and should work, even though it tends not to work in that way. We are content to ignore, in my opinion, or at least rarely ever to internalize the fact that our minds, our faculty of reasoning, our way of understanding the world, simply does not work the way the European rational tradition would have us believe. And in our next episode, we're going to look specifically at the extent to which this picture of reasoning that we see being presented in this classical European philosophy, we're going to look at how accurate that is or is not. Now, I think we all have some sense that this, the way that Locke and Mill and others were talking about rationality, that that can't just be absolute truth, that we can't, it can't be this kind of absolute objective, almost, you know, sort of edging toward being a godlike process that these folks were talking about, I think we all accept that, yes, fundamentally, that is not a perfectly accurate picture of the way reason and rationality actually works, right? But how prepared are we to accept the idea that perhaps the real processes of quote-unquote rationality, the real ways that our minds work, perhaps they're not similar to that mode of that classical notion, that classical ideal of reason and rationality whatsoever. How comfortable are are we going to be, to to put it a different way, how comfortable are we going to be with the notion that maybe the only reason we continue to sort of cling to these semi-truths about reason that have sort of come down to us from these philosophers, maybe the only reason we continue to cling to those basic structures is because we simply have no exposure whatsoever to any alternatives. So next time, what we're going to start doing is looking at how profoundly we may well have misunderstood what reason is and how it operates. We're going to see as best we can, based actually on the work of a scientist named Daniel Kahneman, uh, we're going to look at his work to see exactly how wrong our instincts about our rational capacity actually are. Because remember, even if we accept that, yeah, okay, this notion of, of nearly perfect objective reasoning, of course, we don't accept that that's right. We haven't really replaced it with anything, have we? And we still have a lot of our instincts, much of our worldview, much of our identity built up around those notions. The same idea, the idea I keep coming back to of why we call this our foundation series, because these ideas are baked in at the very foundation of the, if you will, the structure of mind that we have built for ourselves in our present day, whether we know it or not. So it's to all of that, and the somewhat unsettling work of showing how wrong we usually are about the way we think our minds operate, it's to all of that that we will be turning next week. And as ever, I thank you for joining me today. Uh, particularly as we enter into this little sub series of shows that I'm working on here on, on European reasoning, which by the way, I'm really, really excited about going to be maybe a sort of a strange journey, but I think it'll be a lot of fun, but thank you for tuning in and thank you for joining me in the coming weeks as well. I'm looking forward to it and now as promised some questions that I'd love to hear your responses to first and generally I would absolutely love to hear your overall thoughts your overall responses to this episode this is this is very much the crux of the point that that I've wanted to make with all the sort of stringing together all these different pieces that we've been discussed does this resonate for you do, do I sound like I've gone too far afield have I put things together in a way that you don't feel really tracks or is really justified. Getting more into the specifics, one of the areas that I find most difficult to convey, and which I'd really specifically like your thoughts on, in the line of reasoning I put forth, we go from this particular mode of rationality, more or less as it's practiced in the most rigorous form, particularly by philosophers, of course that's been our focus, but you could say it's it equally uh, by scientists and by engineers and by other highly sort of technical thinkers in, in different ways. So we take this very rigorous form of reasoning, then we jump all the way over, and this this is the area where I still feel like the way I'm conveying this feels like a stretch. Although I do stand by it, it does feel like a stretch. So we take this niche, highly rigorous way of thinking, and we jump all the way over to a general notion of chauvinism, In which we see a kind of kindred affiliation to that mode of reasoning driving an entire people to be chauvinistic on its behalf, even if the people I am claiming are quote unquote rational chauvinists do not, in fact, use this rigorous form of reasoning. Maybe they don't come anywhere close to using anything like it. Not, you know, again, not in the strict sense that a Mill or a Locke or another philosopher might or or a scientist, or, or others, again, who are using reason in the most rigorous, logical fashion. So in this, am I being a little sloppy in thinking that the chauvinism that attends to this style of reasoning might spread quite widely and then become the sort of core of a chauvinist snowball of, of religion and commerce and everything else that was ultimately spread through this process of imperialism? Another question, and this is one we will surely be coming back to, because to me, in in an abstract philosophical way, this is one of the most fascinating questions to all of us here. If you're open to the idea that imperialism has had this gargantuan effect on the way people across the globe use their minds, the way they use reason, the way they conduct inquiry, the way they cultivate understanding, if you agree that the effect of imperialism was in part to standardize the, I don't even know what to call it, would you say the quote-unquote, the shape of the mind, the operations of the human mind across the globe, to standardize those operations, to standardize the way the human mind is structured across the globe to an extent that we've really likely never seen before in human history. It's almost impossible to imagine that we could have. Well, if you agree with that, this sort of mass standardization of the way human beings use the human mind, it leaves open this question. How variable could our minds possibly be while still being what we would call quote unquote successful? What different ways of conducting reasoning or, or even of constructing civil society. remember, as we keep talking about all those aspects of civil society that we've said a few times were fundamentally rational following the same patterns by which we believe reason can and should operate, well, that means that this style of rationality that we're claiming has become so standardized across the globe, well, that's all reflected back into civil society. And, of course, vice versa. That is very much a symbiotic process, if you will, between the individual mind and civil society. And we're going to talk more about that, too. But, again, to, to kind of ask this question directly, if we believe that the patterns of reasoning have been standardized across the globe, and that those patterns of reasoning in turn have shaped the operations of civil society in many significant ways, well then, how differently could successful individual minds possibly operate, and how differently could civil society be patterned after them than the ways in which we've become accustomed? And in this, as I say, I'm excluding what we would call quote-unquote unsuccessful patterns of reasoning, I mean, you know, except that there are ways to use the mind that are not going to be successful. They're not going to be useful to our survival. They're not going to be useful to our constructing a society. They're not going to be sustainable ways that the mind can be constructed to thrive, you know, either as an individual or as a society over a long period of time. These are ways of thinking that lead to demonstrably false or harmful or otherwise unproductive conclusions. But even that, of course, all that gets tricky, because how else would we decide what a successful style of reasoning is than by using our own current style of reasoning that is, as we have said, inclined to find every other style of reasoning suspect? And yet I think we can all agree, it is possible to use the mind, you know, pick, pick the term, it's possible to use the mind incorrectly, or poorly, or unsuccessfully. In any event, I, I would really love to hear your thoughts on all this. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at a freedom of ideas. You can reach me via email, words at a freedom of ideas. You can check out our website, which to keep everything consistent is a However, you'd like to reach out, I certainly would love to hear hear from you. And as always, I thank you very much for tuning in.